Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And now, your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is a bonus episode. It's episode 74. Before we get to the 10-time PGA Tour winner and 2013 Regions Tradition Champion, David Frost, I just wanted to touch base on a couple things before we get going with this bonus episode. As a reminder, on Tuesday, I will be recording an interview with the 2018 United States Mid-Amateur Champion, Kevin O'Connell. For those of you that might not know his entire story, Kevin was almost set to turn pro at Euro Tour Q School, but that's when the U.S. Mid-Am at Charlotte Country Club kind of got in the way. He played well, made match play, and ended up winning the championship. So, of course, he played in the Masters this year. He's heading to Pebble Beach to play the U.S. Open. And after that, well, we're going to find out more about that on Tuesday. This is your chance to get involved and participate with the interview. So if you have some questions for Kevin, and they could be about anything, the U.S. Mid-Am playing in the Masters, does he have a swing coach, what does he eat on the golf course, anything at all, submit your question via email or DM it to us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. All the information that you need to reach us is available in the show notes of this episode. You know by now that we like rewarding listener participation. The USGA and Seamus Golf have chipped in a U.S. Open Pebble Beach bag tag. It's engraved. It is awesome. That is going to go out to one of the lucky winners that submit a question. I'll also kick in some back-of-the-range swag as well. Just another way to get you guys involved and participating with the evolution, so to speak, of this podcast. We've been getting tons of support since this podcast launched, and on Friday, we received a very large vote of support from the USGA. If you follow them on Instagram, and roughly 260,000 people do, you might have noticed that they posted some of our audiograms on their page. So the audiograms are those 60-second teasers of our episodes that have the, the wavy line in them. It's, it's an audiogram. You know what it is. Anyway, well, they posted a few of them on their own Instagram page featuring some of the previous USGA champions that have appeared as guests on the back of the range. So very cool of them to do that. If you haven't listened to some of these episodes, get back in Apple Podcasts and Spotify and chase those episodes down. They're not hard to find. We have U.S. Mid-Am champions like Stuart Hagestad, Matt Parziali, Shannon Johnson, and yes, our buddy Joe Buck was featured as well. So go check those out, and thank you again to the USGA for supporting the back of the range. Our special guest on this bonus episode is David Frost. He has won all over the world, PGA Tour, Sunshine Tour, European Tour, Champions Tour. He has traveled the globe and won all over the place and is still playing some amazing golf out on the Champions Tour. So I met David at the Oasis Championship in Boca Raton, um, a buddy of mine actually went to one of his wine events and kind of put us together. And he actually invited me on the range after he got done with his afternoon round. And he's like, yeah, come on the range and watch me in a few balls. And it was really cool. I thought, wow, here I am. I'm, I'm the host of the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I'm, I'm on the range at a Champions Tour event. So while I'm just standing there and soaking it in and thinking how cool I was, David says, so Ben, what do you see? I'm like, what do I? what do I see? What, what do I see about, about what? So at that moment, his caddy is staring at me. Frosty is staring at me. I feel that everyone with an earshot is staring at me. What, what do I see in your swing? 
This guy won the World Series of Golf in 1989 in a playoff against Ben Crenshaw. And you want to know what I think about your golf swing? So what turned out to be a lot of fun turned into a little bit of terror because what am I going to tell Frosty that makes me look somewhat intelligent about the golf swing? Well, I I said a couple of things um, and he kind of nodded at me and, and agreed and luckily let me off the hook. I still don't remember what I said. I just said something very plain just to get me out of there. But still, he could have been nicer. I didn't feel like I was babbling too much, even though I'm sure I was. Well, when we were finally able to record this episode, he was out on the road preparing for the next event on the Champions Tour. We spoke about his unique start in the game in South Africa, making it onto the PGA Tour, and yes, his uh, side hustle, so to speak, Frost Wines. If you shop at Trader Joe's, you could and should pick up a bottle. So cheers to you, Frosty. Thanks for making time to join me here at the back of the range. Hey, thanks, uh, Ben. Yeah, I've literally just got back from the back of the range. I know you are you are quite the tinkerer. So, well, let's uh, let's dive into exactly what you were doing. You're out in Arizona. You're playing in the uh, the Colaguard Classic out at uh, at a Tucson National Resort. So, getting ready for uh, kind of the Arizona West Coast swing, so to speak, of the Champions Tour. So, what were you just working on out at the back of the range? So, I um, I've gone this week to a little softer shop. Uh, I've gone from uh, what I used to play X1 soft step, meaning the X100 true uh, temper dynamic gold. Uh, X100, when we soft step it, I take the two iron, I put it in the three iron shot ahead. I take the three iron, I put it in the four iron head, put, take the four iron shaft and put it in the five iron head and so forth. Um, so you're playing X1, but they're all soft to the, the typical X. Okay. I felt the last two weeks, I felt I uh, didn't quite, uh, I feel too bawdy. It still feels too bawdy for me. So I spoke to the uh, two temper rep at the Honda Classic on Monday. Okay. And I told him I want to try the S400s. Um, so he said, he asked me what I was trying to accomplish. And I said, I'm just trying to get a little more fear. So he said, why don't you try and self step an S400? So uh, I'm trying the S400s, uh, and I felt really good in my program yesterday. And then uh, today is Thursday. We start tomorrow. I took a little nap, woke up. The driving range is about 40 yards from my uh, hotel room window. <laughs> nice. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't resist just to go and fine-tune it again. Uh, so that's what I was doing. Just, just want to maintain that little uh, feeling down the bottom, you know, so... I don't want to try and work so hard to hit the golf ball, but uh, but it's okay if I hit it hard and I get good results. Of course. I don't want to hit it hard and I have that that body result like I've been getting. So um, really quite excited trying this. Nice. So so it, you're looking for more a little more feel, and when you say body, you mean just kind of a very stiff, not a lot of like physical feedback on the shot. Yeah, it, it almost feels like I'm hitting the ball on the bottom groove of the club. And right. It's not getting to the, it's not the second and third and fourth groove, you know? See, now this is very interesting because this is not coming from a guy that's trying to necessarily find something to jumpstart his career or find a way to keep his job. This is coming from a guy that's won over 30 times all over the world who is uh, – Entering, I guess it would be what about your tenth year, ninth, tenth year on the Champions Tour, 
you know when i when i met you at the oasis championship in boca it was a lot of the same you're you seems like you're constantly searching is that something that you would attribute your success to that you're always trying to get better uh yes if it, if it's not about the golf swing that's uh, that it might be something that's uh that you're stuck with you know um it's either the swing or the club so I, I take a longer time to blame the clubs and <laughs> rather work on my swing and blame my swing. Nice. But sometimes you get to a point where maybe I can just try something with the clubs. Um, so I'm always, you know, fiddling, tinkering, but you're trying to find that little, uh, that little, uh, that little feeling, that little golden feeling, you know? Sure. So not, not to put you on the spot, but you've been tinkering now. You've been a professional since, I guess, 1981 is when you turned pro. Looking back of all the different clubs and shafts and grips and stances, is there anything that sticks out that you just think to yourself, man, Frosty, what the hell were you thinking trying to do something like that? No, but what, I, what else that I uh, you know like to think back on about is, I, you know, my sort of golden years was between, say, where, where I felt the clubs were doing a good job for me was when I was using uh, Hogan Irons and the Apex 5 shaft. Yeah. Uh, from, say, 86 to 95, um, you know, that's when I won all my tournaments. And uh, then Hogan went out of business and they stopped making the Apex 5 shaft. That's when I started getting more into the true temper. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say since then, but, but since then I haven't had that consistent, uh, strike on the ball, uh, like, like when I used my, like when I had with my husband's. When, uh, when you were winning, I mean, you're, you're talking about from like 1988 to 97, where you won 10 times on the PGA tour. Um, at, at that time, did, you know, you mentioned Hogan, did you ever get a chance to meet Hogan and talk to him about shafts and about his equipment? I know he was very proud of his his equipment company. Did you have a chance to, to visit with Mr. Hogan at all? So yeah, every year during the uh, colonial, uh, he would put on a dinner for the Hogan players, Hogan staff players at uh, Shady Oaks. Yep. For so, you know, he would, he would tell us a few stories there. Didn't, we weren't really able to get into his head about, you know, clubs and shafts and things right there, uh, right there. But I did have an opportunity to, uh, spend some time with him in the, uh, in his office and also hitting balls with him at Shady Oaks one day, but he didn't talk much. He just, um, I I was out of the range purposely trying to, you know, pick his brain one day. And, uh, and he said, uh, I saw him walked over and I said, do you mind if I watch you hit a few balls? And he said, sure. And, uh, and then he looked at me and said, what club are you hitting? I said, I'm hitting a two iron. He said, well, take my two iron at the bag and go and hit it. So I went to his bag and it was a brand new, two iron in the wrapper still and uh, oh. proceeded over to my little spot about 20 yards away. And uh, first two iron I hit, I cold shanked it. <laughs> Second two iron, I cold shanked it again. <laughs> and then I stared down at the, at the hosel of the club and noticed that, and noticed how stiff it was where the last step down was only about, you know, three or four inches from the hosel. And uh, figured out, well, that's why I shanked it because that, you know, it's so stiff down there. Right. It's not releasing. But the other thing, the other reason was that his clubs were extremely flat. So the toe was, was, uh, the toe of the club was really drooped down a lot. So it was a very flat, uh, angled club, which stopped him from hitting the ball to the left right. and always promoted a fade. 
But that's also why I shanked it because uh, the toe caught the ground and the hosel led and I hit the ball out the shank of the club. <laughs> so the combination of the stiff shaft and the flat lie. But then uh, by, by the third shot, I figured out what was you know what I needed to do. But right. I also knew out the out the uh, <clears throat> out the corner of my ear that I'm sure you heard me shank it. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, we've all yeah. been there and shanked a cl- shanked a shot, whether it's on. Uh, you know, uh, uh, on the driving range or playing with buddies, but you had to shank two in a row in front of Mr. Hogan. I, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, yeah, it's okay. The moment was worth the moment was uh, worth living for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a story. I mean, who uh, you know, you got to hit balls with uh, with Mr. Hogan. Um, yeah. You know, I, whenever I start these episodes, I always like to ask people how they got into the game. A lot of people listening will know your career. They know you've. You're from South Africa. You've played uh, all over the world for for many, many years and had tremendous success. But I don't know if I've ever heard of two jobs someone had before they turned professional. So before we start into how you really got into playing golf, what were some of the jobs that you had before you became David Frost, the professional golfer? Well, uh, out of school, uh, you know, in school you have, you know, odd jobs, working in a restaurant, you know, that kind of thing. But that's for pocket money. Yeah, that's just um, yeah. Growing up, I, I I knew I had to do to serve two years in the military in South Africa. Okay. So uh, I was gonna. It was inevitable that I would be drafted in the Army, Navy, Air Force, or the Police Force. And um, so I ended up uh, doing two and a half years in the Police Force as my national service. So. There I uh, we did six months in the um, police academy uh, from April seventy eight or September seventy eight. So you were kind of stuck in there; you couldn't get out, and you know you just uh, you're you, not, you yeah, did all your training. You. Yeah, they got you. Yeah, and I I used to uh, I was able to sneak out a little bit to the golf course. Uh, the brigadier that was in charge of the uh, of the academy um, on a Tuesday and. Uh, Thursday we had a sport parade, as they called it, and uh, he uh, he made Frost come out to his office and escort him down to the golf course where we'd play nine holes. And if I didn't bring my uh, my roommate, my bungalow mate, who was about six foot five, a hamburger from the clubhouse, I was uh, I was going to pay a, a, a steep price. Uh-huh. So that was the only time I got out of the, uh, the um, academy. But then uh, then after that I, I got posted out and. Uh, you know, I walked the beat and uh, worked shifts and uh, uh, through the city of Cape Town. Um, you know, we just did what policemen do. Of course. And then uh, that lasted for two and a half years. I saw an opportunity after that also to play a lot of golf and uh, decided in this uh, next career would be to be a cigarette rep where we I worked on the promotion team and we actually... Uh, Promoted golf, uh, hang gliding, fishing. So we do that on weekends and during the weekdays I was able to play my golf and those weekends we didn't have promotional events, you know, I was able to play my league golf at my golf club. And so I, I, I developed a nice amateur career, uh, through that in Johannesburg. It was a great place to play golf, uh, you know, uh, 6,000 feet above sea level. The weather's always great. So. Uh, my amateur career really got uh, got going while I lived in Johannesburg in uh, late, well, in eighty eighty one. Sure. Um, and those were my my two jobs. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't think I've ever heard that. Uh, when when you had those 
see so you you had the job yet you were on the police force but you know we're we're talking late late 70s early 80s and then you try and turn professional it's obviously a much different uh circumstance than it is now you know um you know we have such great technology these days with information and and multiple different tours and challenge tours but you know you're in South Africa it, it's it's you know I think it's about a 16 hour flight to get to New York from Johannesburg you know how did you actually plot your way to playing professionally did you have a strategy in mind of which tours you wanted to try what was kind of your strategy to becoming a professional well well first of all we have the the luxury of what we call the sunshine tour in South Africa right i'm sure a lot of I don't know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about the sunshine tour and, uh, you know, we have great weather. We have uh, great golf courses. Uh, it's no fluke that we have have had such uh, great golfers come out of South Africa, um, uh, you know, in the last, say, 80 years. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the courses and the tournaments and the, um, the, the experience that it offers you um, is, is definitely uh, something that, you know, can carry you to the heights that you need to achieve as a professional golfer. So uh, I decided, well, I know I've decided, I, I obviously wanted to make my mark on the local tour first to see whether I was good enough. I didn't even think I was good enough. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I was good amateur. I made my national, uh, I got my national colors for South Africa. Um, and I thought, let me give it a shot. Uh, I play the, the Sunshine Tour, which, which runs from December to January every year. So we call it like the, the 81-82 circuit right, and then the 82-83 right. circuit. So I turned pro in my 81-82 circuit and finished 16th on the money list. Um, and then, oh, because I was, when you're in the military, you go into the reserve list for five years after you finished your two years. So my my next year I had to do another thirty day camp at my local police station. <laughs> so I couldn't I couldn't wander too far off. Right. You know? Okay. So that makes and, sense. Uh, okay. So then eighty eighty two I didn't really have any way to play. Um, I I came over to Orlando, Florida, where I spent five weeks in April with Full Ritson. Yeah. And played some mini tours. Played JC Goosey there, and then uh, made my way from. From there, with uh, with Florence and stepson Mark McCann, we went over to uh, to to four spot or to Monday in Europe. So I had to be back in South Africa by September for this camp, you know. Right. So I played uh, I played in Europe for three months and Monday qualified a few places and you know I think I finished uh, ninth in the German Open in Stuttgart. And then joined the the eighty two eighty three circuit in South Africa and won my won the second tournament of the of the season, which was in December of two. I won uh, uh, beat Nikki Price on the, at the tournament in Sun City. So kind of felt that you know I was moving, I was making headway uh, in this in this professional endeavor that I was uh, uh, trying to pursue. So in the eighty two eighty three circuit. I managed to finish second on the money list in South Africa, which gave me an exemption into Europe. It oh, gave me my okay. card in Europe. The top two on the South African money list got a tour card in Europe. So I used that and started my 83 season in Europe as a 
exam player. Right, okay. Uh, finished 32nd that year. But finishing second in South Africa also gave me the opportunity in the U.S. It qualified you for the World Series of Golf in Akron, Ohio, which is always known to the local or to the people nowadays as the Bridgestone. Right. So, so I came over in '83 for the Bridgestone, and um, that was my first uh, taste of American golf in '83. And then, you know, went back to Europe. I finished like 32nd on the money list. '84, uh, I p- uh, started in Europe again. In April, we normally started. That's when the season started in in Madrid. And I uh, played the 84 season there. Uh, midway through the season, you know, Nick Price had been very uh, successful here, Dennis Watson. Um, so I figured, well, if they can play here, why don't I give it a shot? So the Sunshine Tour really gave you kind of your map, so to speak, on how to get to the European Tour, how to get to the U.S. Tour. But most of your success, most of your wins occurred on the PGA Tour in the United States. Was there anything specific about the PGA Tour that kind of fit your game? Was it the style of courses? Can you maybe pinpoint anything that really made you feel comfortable where you can compete on the uh, arguably the biggest tour in the world? Well, I never thought I had a... Uh, I, I really had a strength in the game that made me successful over here. I didn't... You know, I'm not a high ball hitter. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't hit par fives into... Uh, so there was nothing really that that made me, uh, you know, be uh, be someone to be spoken about. That oh boy, here comes a here comes here comes a heavy by a steroid or something. You know, I just never had anything like that. Um, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I had, you know, I had any of those uh, those characteristics to make me a great player, but I didn't have too many weaknesses, if I can say that. Right. Well, uh, obviously, one of your strengths is your putting and is your short game. I, I'm sure you're aware that you still do hold the record for the least amount of putts in a 72-hole 72, 72 PGA Tour event with an an absolutely mind-boggling 92. Uh, that's averaging 26 putts around. Um, you did that back in 05 at the Heritage. Um, I'm just, no, that's 23 putts around. 23 you're right 23 putts around yeah well math wasn't really, <laughs> math was not really my best so um so so putting in short game obviously is something that you continue to work on it's obviously something that that amateurs need to work on but they don't do that very much they like to go out under the driving range and hit their driver and and hit it as far as they can you probably i mean i can't fathom the number of proams you've played in but um, what are some of the things that you talk to your pro-am partners about on how they can improve their game? What are the questions maybe that they come to you with? Well, I, you know, get back to the, um, you know, the chipping and putting. Um, I grew up in Cape Town and it's like San Francisco, you know, it's windy, it's rainy, temperatures are cold. You know, you can have a, a great day and only hit five or six greens for that reason. So right. you have to be creative. You know, you have to be able to make putts. You have to, you know, uh, visualize these chips. You got to use a lot of different clubs when you chip. Sometimes it's a seven iron, sometimes it's a nine iron, sometimes it's a sandwich. So you got to be able to use all clubs in the bag. Um, you know, uh, so you got to be creative around the greens. You know, because because of weather uh, in the first place. So that's how you develop your your skills um, uh, around the greens. And and I always promote. Uh, you know, using different clubs. Don't just take one club. What people do is uh, they park the cart over there, they take the sandwich and the putter, 
and that's what they try and chip with. Right. Um, you know, the bag is way over there. Well, I'll just use this glove and, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, it's so harmful to, to the results when you, you know, got this wedge and the closest you can get it is maybe 15 feet because it's not a run. Right. Okay. Um, and, and so I, I like to teach people to use the seven iron, the eight iron, the nine iron and, and, you know, hit, hit a lot of, uh, shots on the chipping green and see what the trajectory, the trajectory of the club gives the ball so that you can then, you know, program that in your, in your mind, in your, um, memory bank and use that whenever you get on the golf course, use the seven iron, use the eight iron, use the nine iron, depending on where the flag is on the green. The flag's way at the back. You take a seven iron and run it up all the way there. If the flag's on the front, yes, take maybe a pitching wedge or a 52 just to get the ball a little airborne, reach the green, and then run the rest of the way. Um, you mentioned having different shots and, and really working hard on your game. You know, you're, you're seeing the same guys uh, that you're, I mean, your coworkers, so to speak. You're seeing the same players from tournament to tournament. Do you ever find yourself practicing or playing practice rounds with the same players from week to week? Who are some of the guys when you're on the tour that maybe you spend a little bit more time with, maybe just on the putting green or chipping with? Any close relationships you had there? The ordinary tournaments, um, you know, you wouldn't try and uh, play with anybody in particular, but the majors is where, you know, we always wanted tea. We always were asked to make tea time uh, preparations for the majors. And, sure. uh, and there, there you would more play with different guys. Uh, British Opens, we'd, the South Africans would try and play together. Well, all of them, matter of fact. Uh, go to the Masters and, you know, Gary Player and, uh, and, and Gary was always exempt. So when you get there, you know, Ernie, myself, Gary, Nick Price, we'd play together. Um, the British Opens, uh, same thing. And uh, I tried to play a lot of uh, uh, my practice rounds with Sandy as much as I could. Because I thought he was, uh, <laughs> of course, <laughs> he was the one. He was the one I could learn things from, especially you know around the greens. And I mean, the golf course was there for you to play. You knew how, what shots to hit off the tee. You knew all that stuff. But it's like you know playing those bump and runs. You know playing those uh, the lob shots around Augusta. That's what I uh, I learned a lot from Seve. I heard a story last week where uh, um, somebody was telling a story where. His son um, was asked, you know, how did how did your father teach you? He said, uh, he said, watch, and he'd hit the shot, and then Sevi would say, you see, just like that. <laughs> so he wouldn't say anything; he'd just demonstrate how to do it. And go, there you go, just do it like that. Yeah, just do it like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's up to you to try and uh, emulate what he just did. Dude. So. <laughs> You know, you see this? Just do it like that. Yeah, that's like <laughs> Picasso. See, here's the painting. I just do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did Did anyone ever explain to Sevi like, uh, look, um, we're not Sevi. Um, can you? <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I used, you know, I think back to all those times that we did. Uh, he did try and teach me something at Augusta. And then I would think back, you know, the reason why I couldn't do it is because I never did this or I never did that. And, right. And, oh, why, where is he now? I wish I could tell him, hey, I found the secret, you know? Yeah. So, but he had a lot of tricks. He had, he had a lot of tricks. He had a lot of tricks. And also, yeah, I mean, he he didn't uh, shy away from getting into people's heads either. I mean, he uh, he definitely knew how, to, uh, knew how to intimidate and knew how to, um, 
yeah you know get an advantage over players so he's probably one of the one of the last uh maybe the 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 last uh, masters of gamesmanship so to speak he wasn't handed things on a silver platter you know his his mother worked a job his father worked a job uh his brothers worked hard you know i mean once he got to where where he was you know great and had enough money but that hunger always stayed inside him you know, one of the things that uh, Seve was able to do and what he's really well known for is the Ryder Cup. Obviously, being from South Africa, uh, you weren't going to be playing in that. But, you know, the, the President's Cup is something that, that was born in the early 90s. First uh, first edition was 94, and you played on that international squad where the uh, President's Cup was held at uh, Robert Trent Jones in Virginia. Can you remember when that started to take shape? I know that, uh, you know, Greg Norman was, was a – a pretty big player in that, and as as well as uh, Nick Price. But when that was forming, kind of what were the thoughts between the the players or that were going to end up being on that international team? Were you excited for it, or was it a little bit unknown? What were your were your thoughts on the Presidents Cup? Well, it was a wonderful sort of experience um, being able to be part of a team event. Which uh, I, there was something like that I played in Europe. It's called the Hennessy Cup, right? Where the rest of the world played. A couple of guys played the the European. Uh, the British, um, but to be part of something as big as this, presented by the PGA Tour, um, and you know, Ryder Cup is one thing, but the, the Ryder Cup is, is presented by the PGA of America. Whereas here we, we were creating something that was part of the PGA Tour, and I think that kind of you know made the players feel more special because the tour was us and we were the tour. So. Uh, and, you know, and the guys on the international team were guys that came to play a lot of PGA Tour events. So we didn't realize at the time how special it was, but yet it did uh, it did have a bearing on us that, you know, this is, uh, this is us, this is our tour. And the fact that they got the presidents involved at the time, current uh, and past presidents, it made, uh, it made the event uh, carry so much more weight. Uh, I remember I got a picture with uh, Byron Nelson and Gerald Ford uh, standing on the tee behind me in uh, one of the afternoon matches that I was ready to tee off. So, you know, Hard to beat that, that kind of thing. You can't just, you can't just spit at that idea. Can you? No, no, that's, that's, you can't beat that. You're uh you were, you were one of two South Africans on the team. The other one being Fulton Alum. Fulton Alum is, uh, is quite a character, at least from stories that I've heard. Is there a Fulton Allen story that you can share for, uh, share with us from the uh, President's Cup? He, uh, he, was, he was a grinder, yeah, and he was a great player. One year he had lost his card. The tournament in Houston was uh, rained out, so we came back in December and just had to uh, play the tournament. But, but he, um, and then he played the, the, you know, the replacement tournament for the Houston Open and won it gave him an exemption for the next two years so tough player um you know which was great uh to have as a match play a guy on your team um you know match players we grew up playing match play in south africa especially in uh at our uh, club golf levels and uh you know i'm surprised we didn't do better in the Ryder cup in the president's cup obviously you're playing here in the u.s and it's just such a new experience yeah. in getting that yeah. going so um, I did have a, I, I, my, my two singles. I halved with Scott Hook the first year, and second year I beat Kenny Perry six and five. But he doesn't like to talk about that. I would imagine not. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you know you're on the you know you're on the Champions Tour uh, now, and you're just it's and it's a, it's amazing how you're just able to recall all these numbers from back in. I mean, you're you're pulling out you know 
the the spot you finished on the the European Tour money list or the order of merit, uh, and you're running into these guys that you had these battles with on the PGA Tour, and now you, now you're seeing them again on the Champions Tour. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I remember listening to Bobby Locke when yeah. I just turned pro back in eighty eighty one uh, in eighty. Or play the amateur tournaments up there, and he would be around, and he would say, you know, he would tell us stories like in 1941, you know, I won the Leeds Open by 15 shots. So, <laughs> so uh, I guess you know, it's just something that kind of happens when you when you when you have that uh, that that uh, that time or that day or that person programmed in your mind. And it'll pop up again. Absolutely. You know, you, you won six times on the Champions Tour. You're still out there, um, you know, just grinding out every tournament and, and just, you know, is it is it the camaraderie with the guys or, you know, what keeps you so passionate and so competitive to play on this tour on this tour now? You know, obviously the courses aren't going to get shorter and every year you got some rookie. I mean, I think Mickelson's going to be 50 next year. So who knows when he's going to pop up on that tour. Uh, what do you enjoy so much about this tour? Well, you know, first of all, the tour, the, the tournaments we play, they don't, uh, you know, they don't play it at 7,000 yards. So, right. you know, guys can still come out here and, you know, you can't hit the driver everywhere. Uh, so you got to maybe the three-wood places. So a guy uh, can compete with, with on, on that level, you know, that the course is on that long. Uh, now when you go into the majors, that's a little different. The course is a bit tougher there. Um you know, and you ask me what keeps you going. Well, you got this guy Langer, you know. Oh yeah. So you, you're thinking, well, he's 61. He can do this. Why can't I do that? And those things keep you, uh, you know, keep you going. So I still, I physically, I feel uh, I don't have anything wrong with me. I, I feel strong enough. So as long as I can keep fiddling with my golf shafts to find some magic, you know, and while the putter is still working, I don't, you know. I didn't have my greatest year last year, so hopefully I can bounce back this year. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the year. That's awesome. You're, uh, I think I heard that you're quite the Peloton guy. You're, you spend a lot of time on the cycle uh, staying in shape. Is that part of your routine? I do a bit of everything. Yeah. Um, I've got a bike at home. I like, I like to cycle in the mornings. You know, I try and do 15 miles with, with a lot of uh, intensity, about an hour, 45 minutes, three, nice. four times a week. And then I have my own little home gym where I can do a lot of stretching and uh, pulley work, a lot of band work, um, yeah, just to keep myself flexible. All of the above, you know, you put a little bit of everything. Uh, I do a bit of everything. So I don't, I don't overdo it. I don't do heavy weights or things like that. But I've got, my flexibility is fine. My strength is fine. So right. um, I don't feel that I have, I have any excuses. <laughs> You're talking about all the hard work you're doing um and you know we we just talked about the president's cup around 94 you know the one thing i do want to ask you about is you know you have plenty of other interests off the golf course one of them is uh wine so you know i i'm sure people that are listening when they go out to dinner they may see a bottle of wine that has uh you know nicholas or palmer or faldo or Els or other golfers but this was something that you pretty much started your you you were one of the first players to really put their name on a bottle of wine um and it wasn't just you lending your name to some other vineyard this is really tied in close to your family's lineage can you speak to how frost wine actually started yeah i um i grew up on a great farm where i actually used to hit golf balls in the vineyards because we lived about eight miles from the nearest golf course 
but I'd lose my golf balls during the plowing season because the sand was very soft then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, I, um, my dad had a great farm growing up, and uh, about a mile from there is where my mother grew up. Her dad had his own farm in the 1930s, so you know, that was kind of in my blood was uh, was this uh, this industry that I grew up in, um, and then uh, in '94 I you know golf took me in that direction where I wasn't going to be into farming, but in '94 I purchased a winery in South Africa, and my first uh, vintage came out in '97 that I produced at the at the vineyard. So that's when it started, and it's gone. You know, I'm not a big brand. I have one one um, private label of my wine that I do for public uh, for excuse me for Trader Joe's. They they in about I got about 400 stores that I'm in, and we do a Sauvignon Blanc and a red blend for them, uh, seven and eight dollars a bottle. And then I have my estate wine that I market and sell through my website. Um, frostwine.com you can order wine there and you can, sure. I can ship it to your house so yeah I mean, I've enjoyed the wine you know gives me something to do um, and the weeks that I'm off my daughter runs the business for me and uh, it'll give me something to do after golf too which which is fun yeah no that's and, and what was the reaction to the players did any of the players uh, come to you for advice or they come to you with questions? Cause like I said, you're one of the first to really start doing something like this. Um, I know how the, you know, guys on the PGA tour or the champions tour, they have, you know, they wear logos on their shirts and they have corporate sponsors, but this is almost like a, a uh, entrepreneurial endeavor that you were going into. What were some of the reactions? Were people asking you questions about it or, or how did that whole, I do get a lot of questions today, you know? Okay. Uh, and I'm playing with guys, and they go, "So how's my business doing?" And I'm, and I'm like, "Well, it's doing great." <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we're in the middle of the of the round, and I don't really want to get into it right there, sure, uh, because they're going to have a shot to play. I got a lot to talk about if I had the time, um, but I just uh, briefly uh, hit on, you know, Trader Joe's has been great for me. Um, um, we're doing twenty thousand cases there, and my estate wine. We just found the direct-to-consumer route, so that's going great. Um, and, you know, what are the different varietals we make, Sauvignon, Shiraz, Cab, and a Pinotage. Um, you know, I'll touch on things like that, but, you know, they don't really get into it. Um, I bring some wine out at some of the tournaments where, uh, where I have access to my, um, my warehouse, like in Chicago, and then I'll drop a bottle in everybody's locker. Oh, nice. Um, and the guys, yeah, the guys will enjoy that. So, you know, they, um, everybody is very supportive. Uh, a lot of guys, um, or a few guys, would ask me if I'm willing to donate a case of wine to their charity. Um, and then they'll, you know, give me exposure that way. So, you know, I must say, I've had a lot of support from the players over the years. And, um, again, it's good fun, you know. It's nice to be able to crack up a, uh, a bottle of wine <laughs> during our tournaments and, uh, and have some fun with it. Of course. Um, I'm not going to ask you who your drinking buddies are, but, uh, you know, a lot of people listening, what they do with their vacation is they go play golf. They get away from work, they go play golf, but golf is your profession. Uh, I'm curious, what does David Frost do on his vacation time? Where do you like to travel? What are the, some of the things that you like doing? Vacation? 
What does that mean? I, I, I know. It's 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 when you're not working. <laughs> it's when you're not working. Like, what do you do when you're not working? Because I do my wine. I do my wine stuff when I'm not working. Okay. Um, I try and um, when I'm home, I try and arrange to do wine dinners. Um, nice. I do a wine dinner at, at country clubs where between five and six, I do a chip and putting clinic, and we'll serve some Sauvignon Blanc. We'll go indoors and we'll uh, we'll try the reds when I've sent the samples to the chef to pair some wine and food. So we'll strategize on that during my off weeks. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't really play golf. I work on my fitness and then do the wine business. And, uh, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I might pick up a club here and there, but try and do a couple of those wine events in, in those weeks that I'm off. And our breaks, are, you know, our breaks are more December, November, December, where I go back to South Africa. There I'll spend time at the winery, come up with, uh, you know, making sure that everything is running smoothly for the year ahead. And then, you know, we go to uh, Mauritius, which is an island in uh, near Madagascar. We have a couple of events there on the European Senior Tour. So we'll go there for three weeks, uh, two weeks to a play. And then, you know, maybe play a social round or two, but... Um, yeah, it's not really vacation time. Yeah. Yet. You're, you're not, not yet. You're, you're busy doing stuff. Um, you know, I, you know, I've played so much professional golf over the years. Right. And, uh, made a lot of contacts, met a lot of great people. Um, you know, and there's always, you know, I kind of look in my database, uh, of people that I've met, uh, come up with, you know, strategize on different, uh, ways, you know, to create, um, you know, just other things. There might be, there's other business opportunities that I, you know, am involved in a little bit. I forgot to ask you about the Sun City Challenge. Um, you know, it's so interesting about that term and is that, you you know, the million dollar purse is basically just about the same as what the leading money winner would win on the PGA Tour for the entire year around that time. So that was, uh, you know, that was uh, a great time because, you know, you would, I would play all my golf overseas. Um, you know, and then I remember Bay Hill in particular, uh, I was going head to head with Payne Stewart. Uh, I think it was 87 when Payne Stewart won. Uh, and, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, he was at home and, you know, had a lot of support. Um, and, um, then what I was trying to say is I go to South Africa and then I got all the support again when the American guys came over there. Of course. So it was really uh, special to have won in front of your home crowd. Um, you know, that you, you just can't buy that kind of uh, enthusiasm, enjoyment, thrill, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was 1987 and... Uh... Yeah, he, he shot 19 under, I was 17 under, and Dan Paul was third at 8 under. That is amazing that you're that you can remember that that clearly. But yeah, you're you're right. Actually, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. We might have we might have a difference here. I think he was at twenty under. It says here twenty, but I, you never know. It's, it's right yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Yeah, he buried the last hole to go to twenty. I had a two <laughs> shot. He had a two shot lead playing eighteen, and I figured uh, in my brain it was always you can still bogey and I can birdie. Right. And he ended up birdieing, so I didn't give up hope, even though I played eighteen. And he won by three. That's right. You're right. That's wow. But then he birdied the hole. So, uh, so I want to ask yeah. you about another close call. And I know you've been, I know you've spoken about this shot. It's probably one of your, your more famous shots in your career, but uh, I know you, you probably have know exactly where I'm going with this, but 
you know, uh, Greg Norman got clipped by a multitude of players. He got clipped by Larry Mize at the Masters, and he got, uh, you know, clipped by Nick Faldo. He got clipped by Bob Tway in the 86 PGA. But you clipped him with a hold bunker shot in 90 at, at the USF&G in New Orleans. You know, it's, it's a great bunker shot. But I guess my question is, you know, golf is not like baseball or football or basketball where, you know, a tough loss, you don't have to see that team for a month or two or three or whatever. But you got to see these guys the very following week in most cases. If you just like turn and not even walk anywhere near Norman or, you know, when things like that happen to you or they happen to other people, is there just like the unspoken rule of we just don't talk about that? Or or is it just the opposite? It's like, hey, you got me last week. I'll get you this week. Yeah, it's definitely like that. It's not... You know, it's not like you're trying to beat him and, and you know, nail his ass to the coffin kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, you're playing the course. You're not playing the man. And, yeah, people don't see it that, you know, you're playing the person. You're playing your own game. There's the hole. There's the shots. Throughout your career, there have been a lot of bad bounces rather than good bounces. And it's nice to get the good bounce occasionally. And, you know, when you win, those the good bounces go your way. Um, so, no, I don't think it's... Uh, I, I don't think it's like um, you come to the next week and you're trying to avoid somebody. Gee, you're competitive. You again, you're playing the field. You're not playing the person. Right. Uh, final question. Unless you have some other question, I should ask you. But I was going to ask you. I wanted to. Oh, it's something I just thought about now. But I thought about it on the weekend. Okay. You remember? And uh, then uh, you watched the golf this weekend where Dustin Johnson got a drop because he was dead up against a tree, but his foot was on the cart path, although he was playing away from the hole. Right. Did you see that? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking. Yeah, so he was basically stymied right behind that tree. And if he, so so I'm assuming what you're getting at is that if he was going to hit that shot sideways, he would not have had his foot on the path, but instead he put his foot on the path so that he would get the drop. Yeah, he couldn't go sideways. He had to go backwards and his foot was on the path. So he got a drop. Now, you need to go to YouTube. David Frost rooting. Karnuski, 1999. On the second hole, I've hit this horrific pull. And uh, I eventually find my ball. But it's it's about two feet below the surface of the road, which is right adjacent to me, right behind me. But because the ball is so low down, and there's no shot to the fairway, I've got to kind of, what I'm trying to do is chip it onto this road. But I called the official over and asked him if I was, if I chip this ball onto the road, do I get a drop? He said yes. Because there was a nice bare piece to the left of the road where I could then drop it. Right. So as I went down to play the shot, I, I couldn't reach the ball. So I had to sort of widen my stones to get my shoulders all the way down, if you know what I'm, what I'm doing. Right. And now all of a sudden, I've got my foot on the path. So I said, do I get a drop? Because my foot is on the path. He said to me, no. I said, why not? He said, because you're taking an abnormal stance. I said, but I've got an abnormal eye. I, I can't just stand with my feet normal width. I would never get down to the ball. So I have to stand wider for me to get all the way down there. Right. And he goes, no, you cannot have a drop. So, you know, I, I asked for a second opinion. And uh, the guy wouldn't give it to me either. So I proceeded to hit the ball like I demonstrated onto the path, and then they gave me a drop. So about on the way back in the plane, one of the uh, PGA Tour officials, that was the RMA official that came to me, Right. came the the RMA, the 
PJ Tour official Ben Nelson came to me and said, hey, I went to the RNA guy and I said to him, look, if the pro tells you, you know, this is his best effort to play this shot, then you're not there to really argue with him um, unless, you know, you see it's not uh, the way he, he has no other option. You know, if he did have another option, fine. Actually, a couple of hours later, Roy McIlroy had the same thing. And the official did not give him a drop. Uh, and you can see that on the replay as well. And, and there, Rory was taking a chance where he tried to stand a little wider than he should have. But I had no choice. So go, go and YouTube that. You know, it's an official, at least my understanding, an official isn't there to, they, they shouldn't be there to, they're trying to guard you from, from accidentally breaking a rule. They're not, they should, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that shouldn't be the, they're not trying to get you. They should be trying to, you know, be. Uh, yeah, you know, I've had, I've had a similar situation at the TPC uh, Sawgrass, uh, Jacksonville. <clears throat> I pulled my drive on 16, the par five. There was a car path. Left of the car path was a tree. My ball was between the car path and the tree, and I was going to have to play a left-handed five iron um, through this gap. That's the only shot I had. And I said to the official, and he said, sure, take a drop. Uh, if, that's your, if that's your intention, uh, you can go ahead and take a drop. So I took a drop, and I played it right-handed. Um, let me see. I was going to ask you this. So uh, you've had this storied career. You've won all over the world uh, over 30 times. On, on multiple tours, I always kind of like to ask this question. You know, what 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 do you tell a uh, what do you tell a twenty one year old David Frost if you can talk to him right now? Any advice you'd give a David Frost at twenty one years old? Uh, definitely, I definitely learn as much as I can from other golfers. You know, go you know, look at the guys that are successful. You know, don't necessarily copy them, right. but but just look at their tenacity and and their you know, and their um, commitment, um, willpower, um, and uh, and just grind away, you know. Grind away and um, uh, work hard. Uh, that's that's all I had. And, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, a, a lot of money. I, you know, didn't have, my parents didn't have money growing up. I, but I had, I had everything I needed. I didn't have more than I needed. Right. I don't think kids need to be spoiled, but you know they need to to grind it out a bit. You know, suffer a little bit. Um, uh, don't don't read too much in the press. You know, my dad used to hide all articles away from me because you don't need that attention in that way and put pressure on yourself. You know, just go about go about your business. Get it, you know, tee it up, hit it down the fairway, make your putts, and come back the next day. You don't. Don't try and get into the uh, mental side of the game too much. Uh, well, uh, I do appreciate you joining us here at the back of the range. Really, uh, really good luck to you uh, in Arizona and the rest of the year on the uh, on the Champions Tour. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And uh, yeah, you know, for those people that are out there that I've uh, been able, lucky enough to meet and and the fans that I've uh, been around. So you know, enjoy your support and uh, thanks for um, thanks for following uh, the game of golf and making uh making me feel special and there you have it special thanks to david frost for joining us for this special bonus episode going to definitely follow him the rest of the season wish him lots of luck a lot of good luck mojo out there on the champions tour don't forget follow us on instagram facebook and twitter and we'll see you next time for the 75th episode of the back of the range golf podcast